welcome to the Last of the Moon podcast. I'm Bryce McCracken. I'm Wyatt Van Dyke. I'm the Ant-Man. That's incredible. I'm Brett Redshaw. What's coming? Me. A lot of me. (laughs) Today we will be talking about the movie Ant-Man and the Wasp, Quantum Mania. This is the newest movie in the MCU. I was a little bit hesitant. I was still excited to see it. I generally enjoy these movies for the most part, with the exception of some movies in the last few years. But today we have a very special guest, the first ever in Last of the Moon history. Hello, welcome to the show, Sean. Hey, hey, hey. Uh, Glad to be here. I'm a longtime listener, first time guest on the podcast, and God, I can't wait to... I I can't wait to bridge a gap today. That's my main goal. And And I'll get into that a little bit later, but... I I think Ant-Man and the Wasp, Quantumania, is the Marvel movie I've had the most thoughts about in a very long time. That's exciting. I've had a fresh perspective on this, which, again, I'll get into later, but I'm very, very excited. Cool. So I just want to take a second for our listeners to talk about who Sean is to me. We have a very funny meeting story. I don't know this. Yeah. No. So That's a good one. The summer before freshman year of college... Sean and I essentially matched as compatible individuals for the rooming software that our university had. Roommate Tinder. Yes, essentially tall, skinny guys. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And we talked for, I think, a couple weeks on this program. And we reached a point where it was like probably understood between the two of us that we were going to room together for our freshman year of college. And then... I went off to summer camp and completely forgot to I was ghosted. be a part of this system. I, I ghosted Sean, and then the evening that the roommate assignments were due, like when we had to tell the university, hey, this is who we would like to room with, I was like, oh, shit, and I texted Sean, and he was like... "I." So when Bryce texted me, so this was the day before, I I had reached out to my current one of my current roommates now uh, to live together, so I guess that worked out well still. But I was on a bike trip to D.C. at the time, and I we made a stop at, like, I don't know, a little food place, and I just open up Instagram, and I see a message from Bryce, and he's like, hey, uh, I know this is last minute, but do you want to live together? And I was <laughs> like, you know, that would be fantastic. I already have a roommate. Yeah, see you on campus, nerd. Uh, and let me tell you, we did see each other. In fact... Our rooms were right next to each other. We, we shared the same a wall. freshman dorm. We shared a wall. We slept, even though we were in different rooms, probably a foot away from each other. We would knock messages to each other. It was very cute. Nobody could keep your love apart from no, one another. Not a nobody wall. could tear us apart. Not campus, security. You guys <laughs> are just, oh, man. It's a love story for the ages. But we've been very good friends ever since. And I brought Sean on this for this episode for a very specific reason sean is a very big marvel fan and i've seen quite a few marvel movies with sean Uh, i enjoy discussing marvel with him because he is a lexicon of marvel knowledge Uh, i think he is a really good example of sort of what the marvel fanaticism is and i enjoy having those discussions with sean because of that and so sean i was hoping you before we talk about this movie specifically if you could just give like a little bit of your Marvel backstory. What's your relation to Marvel as a franchise? What drew you in initially? What keeps you coming back? Oh, gosh. I can't even remember what drew me in. It's been... I've been a Marvel fan for a decade now. Like, I've Did been, you grow up with superhero movies? 
I, not like early, early childhood, but I had always enjoyed things of that nature. Like I was a big Power Rangers fan as a kid. Like any type of thing where people were getting like juiced up and (laughs) about to go beat the shit out of people. I was like, yeah, this is fun. And I didn't get into Marvel until I was probably 11 or 12 uh, when the MCU was in its early stages. But I remember remember seeing that first Avengers movie in the theaters and I'm like, this is incredible. And since then, I haven't missed a Marvel movie in the theaters with the exception of Thor The Dark World, which uh, for good reasons there. You have since seen that movie, I'm sure. Oh, multiple times, unfortunately. Who's making you? (laughs) Me. (laughs) We can discuss that later. I'll put you on my therapist chair and really try to crack into that psyche. That's the one I can barely remember for good reason. That might be trauma blocking on my end. But um, anyway, so I've been a diehard Marvel fan for a while. It's just always been an event for me. Like a new Marvel movie comes out and I'm like, oh, I can't wait to see it. I'm a big fan of connected universes. So anything where I can like one wacky ass thing with another wacky ass thing and it makes this other really really cool thing i'm a big fan of that's one of the reasons why i love super smash brothers so much because hmm. start I, that started with me when disney channel started mixing like that's so raven and the sweet life of Zack and <laughs> sweet uh, what, what's uh, wizards on deck with hannah montana yeah, i lost that one of them i lost <laughs> my mind oh my god those were highlights of being like nine it ten. was such a big deal to me oh. I could. I did not know that it was possible. I didn't know. I didn't understand how like studios work. That they're like pretty much all on the same set anyway, <laughs> and it's not that hard to just pull Raven Simone over to the you know the hotel and just you know run some scenes. Big but that was of Raven Simone's performance in uh, Princess Diaries two. Yeah, we. Oh did, yeah, we did a uh, Princess Diaries watchathon, which just consisted of two movies the other night, and that was. I had such a good time. It was a good time. But uh, let's talk about the movie at hand. Sean, you want to give the logline for Ant-Man? What's this movie? Yeah, we'll, we'll give a brief little thing. And again, I don't want to spoil many of my thoughts heading into it. So I'll try and just remember the important stuff. So it starts off with our main character, Scott Lang, played by Paul Rudd, fresh off the heels of uh, saving the world, no big deal. And now he's trying to figure out life post-Thanos. So, Aren't we all? So he's written a book. He's trying to become a better dad to his daughter, Cassie, played by Catherine Newton. Um, and just, you know, kind of hanging out while everybody around him is doing bigger and better things, such as Hope Van Dyne, played by Evangeline Lilly. You have one of my first ever crushes, fun fact. Whoa. Really? Lost, yeah. Oh, that makes sense. Uh, you've got Hank Pym, played by Michael Douglas. And Janet Van Dyne, played by Michelle Pfeiffer. Wait, she, hold on. Is she the one with the long hair in like the first scene of Lost? I'm forgetting. She's in every season of Lost, but yeah. My brain is firing on all synapses right now. Right I d- now. had no idea. Did not put that together. I think if you cut a lot of hair off of a person, they just change into a whole nother being in my mind. <laughs> I just thought those were two different people. Wyatt actually does not look at faces when he's looking at people. <laughs> I have no perception of another person. I don't really talk to him much, you know? I just, I can tell by hair and hair alone. Please continue, Sean. Um, well, that explains why when I wear a hat, you pull a gun on me every time I walk into the door. Who are you? Who are you? Who are you? Put your hands in the air! <laughs> so anyway. strange. Anyway, so everybody's trying to figure out life post-Thanos. And Cassie... Again, Scott's daughter has become, she's 
she's a teenager now. She's probably 18 or 19 in this movie. And she's trying to find her place in the world. She's working very closely uh, with Hank Pym, uh, trying to work on the quantum realm and maximizing the potential of that, which is basically just tiny, tiny, teeny, tiny, itsy bitsy <laughs> little baby universe. It's very small. And yeah, I was thinking about that a lot throughout this movie. I was like, they're actually like not in another dimension right now. They're just really, really tiny. Yeah. Which is very amusing. <laughs> you to me. figured it out. You got it. <laughs> I got it. That's what it is. And so Cassie ends up developing this machine that allows her to communicate with the quantum realm and send signals back and forth. However, as soon as she boots up that machine, Janet Van Dyne, Michelle Pfeiffer goes, Cassie, God, no, you're going to get us killed. And then, boom, they're in the quantum realm within the first five to ten minutes of the movie. And then we learn that Janet has a very deep history with the quantum realm, has not told her family many of the things that happened down there as uh, she spent 30 And we years. as the audience don't know any of that either, right? No, no, that that is not known really. Uh, until now because Janet hasn't been in the MCU a whole bunch. The whole plot of Ant-Man and the Wasp was getting Janet out of the quantum realm. And so this is the first movie where she really has a prominent role and not to jump ahead, but I think she killed it. Um, So anyway, they she looks great. Let me tell you. So they journey through the quantum. How old does Michelle Fiverr have to get before I stop thinking she's hot? That's a great question. (laughs) She's not there there? yet. That's all I know. (laughs) So anyway, they they journey through the quantum realm, and they learn all these things about Janet. Uh, They get separated at one point with Hank, Janet, and Hope in one little coalition, Scott and Cassie in the other. Uh, They do a lot of living, laughing, and loving. (laughs) Maybe the real quantum realm was the friends that they made along the way. (laughs) Truly. I think they made more enemies than friends here, but... Yeah. eh. But anyway, they run into... uh, a large cast of characters on the way, including Bill Murray's Krylar. Yeah, that was wild. Yeah, that was that was a little weird. And, and then run into the two big bads of the movie. You have Modok, played by Corey Stoll. And then you have Kang the Conqueror, played by Jonathan Majors. And we quickly learn Kang's backstory and how he ended up in the quantum realm and learn that this dude's out for blood. And so the bulk of the movie is spent thinking, oh, God, we can't let Kang out of here. We got to stop him. Like, I know we're microscopic, but if Kang (laughs) I know we're just little guys. (laughs) If Kang leaves, universes are going to get eaten, and he's just going to rule everything. So that's our conflict. Thank you for that, Sean. Before we get into spoilers, I'm just curious... Pretty much all of us saw this at different times and not together. So I'm I'm curious. I want to get everyone's like one sentence thoughts about this movie. Sean, you can go first. Great for Marvel fans, confusing for casual viewers. Brett. Movie fine, Paul Rudd, love of my life. I said one sentence, but you're allowed to speak in proper English. <laughs> uh Paul Fine Rudd like movie okay. Would not see again. Mmm. <laughs> what? I am the casual viewer that Sean was talking about. Uh, there's a lot that caught me off guard. 
It was a fine movie. It was an entertaining two hours. Give your real thoughts. I did not like this movie. <laughs> you can't, you can't, you said like four times before we recorded that you thought this I was a bad movie. don't want to be. you guys pre-pod talked? Yeah, we it, just, Wyatt does it all the time. And I, I just say things like, I didn't enjoy that movie. This is not a one sentence review for me, but final one sentence review. I did not enjoy this movie. Uh, I'm just sad I got left out is all. I, no, I know, understand. I'm gonna, you know, take I that asked to heart. you. You refused to talk to me about it. Because he's a good, just he's a good co-host. Him. Two or three weeks, I'll be over this. Don't okay. worry. I actually really enjoyed this movie more than I have a Marvel movie probably since Spider-Man: No Way Home. Was that? Wow. Yeah. Uh, that that is a little surprising for me. Well, can can I can I go back to my silly little thought that yeah. I had there a second ago? Because there, I feel like I know that you asked for a one sentence review my personal feelings on it are a little bit more complicated because it's like, and this is how I often feel about Marvel movies in general, is that like I have a container of how I feel about Marvel movies and I have a container about how I feel about other films and they don't really overlap. So like if we're talking about how I how I rank this in other Marvel movies, it's it's like way up there. I Like I enjoyed that experience as a Marvel movie goer but then like if we are talking about it in a vacuum as a movie it didn't really it didn't really do it for me yeah i still think this pales in comparison to the vast majority of the movies from phase 1 through 3 but i was just very upset with the fourth phase of marvel movies i left nearly every movie in phase 4 just kind of angry that i keep getting my hopes up for these movies and they're putting bad movies in front of me, and Sean will disagree with that. That's okay. We've had uh, discussions about most of them. Not but. necessarily. We're in phase four now. No, right? so this, this this kicked off phase five. Yes, this so was this the, is the first, first one of five. Yep. Um, okay, gotcha. Yeah, so, Bryce. The, I, I, the end of phase four was Black Panther, which mm-hmm. was probably the of the phase four movies the Marvel movie that I was most excited for, and also left the most upset. Yeah, I, I think Bryce and Wyatt, you two are the exact people that. I'm I'm glad to be talking with you too, Brett. But uh, dude, what the you, hell? You've been, you've been you've been less negative so far. And, okay, thanks. And Bryce and Wyatt have both said some kind of buzzwords for me that Ooh. are really sparking one point We're that a monolith, I'm Wyatt. that I'm very excited to bring up today. Yeah, and I'm coming at your two asses too. I, I, now that <laughs> I'm on Sean's side, now that I'm on Sean's team, <laughs> I feel loved and accepted. I knew we were on the same side of the table for a reason. I'm gonna lash out. But I uh, show the moon if you may. Get out of here. You're <laughs> off yeah. the show. So I, I, I can't wait to dive into my biggest takeaway cool. from this movie. Yeah, let's uh let's do it. If you don't want to be spoiled for Ant Man and the Wasp Quantum Mania, please go ahead and watch it. It's in theaters right now. It's doing all right. It'll likely be in theaters for a while before it hits Disney Plus. So if you're interested in joining this discussion and not being spoiled, go ahead and check it out and we will see you then. Otherwise, let's get into it. All righty. <laughs> I just Let's chilled down the spine on that one. Wow. Lasso the moon ASMR. The amount of time. I think we do that once an episode. <laughs> one of us is like ASMR episode. Damn it. All right. Well, no points for originality <laughs> here, but. Uh, so getting into the real discussion of Ant-Man and the Wasp, Quantumania, I have one point that I want to bring in before we get into this movie. I know I said in my one-sentence review, uh, Marvel fans really like this movie, and casual viewers are 
confused. And what I mean by that is there's been, a, and Bryce alluded to this earlier, but there's been a stark contrast in the quality of Marvel's shows and movies since in the post-COVID era, which is phase four now. I think the biggest reason for that is phase four lost a little bit of individuality with everything they've put out. Phase, by that, do you mean like every movie no longer feels like it holds up on its own? It's correct. serving the greater MCU it, purpose? Correct. Everything in the Infinity Saga phases one through three holds up really well on its own. People can go into any of those movies, watch them, appreciate them, and say, that was a good story. I understood what happened. And if you're a diehard Marvel fan, then you're like... You get those nuggets. Then you're like, ooh, I really like this Easter egg. This is going to tie in later. And you start putting the pieces together, and it's fantastic. Captain America Civil War. Bingo. Or I'm sorry. I mean, the uh, I was actually... Uh, that's also, well, that, that is a good example. I was about to say, that's a great movie. Well, I was going to say uh, The Winter Soldier. Like, both, of, great movie. both of those are two of the best examples of that. Of just holding up really well on their own, but you also know bigger things are coming down the line. And I think Phase 4 really really lost that to some extent mm -hmm. where many things felt like a segue and i think this has been especially prevalent in sequels to pre-established heroes like i think doctor strange and the multiverse of madness fell under this thor love and thunder fell under this and i think ant-man and the wasp quantumania has also fallen victim to just being a segue for a greater story. That's largely been my gripe with the MCU, and I think Brett agrees. Wyatt has not seen a lot of these, but... I'm still well-versed enough to know that of the movies I see, it feels like I'm watching something to understand a reference that's made later in one of two movies that comes out once every five years. Um, but I can understand the, the issue there. I'm glad to hear, though, Sean, that you, from the other perspective, can feel that as well, even if you're able to enjoy these stories more. Like, and I think I enjoy them because I know what's coming down the line. Yeah. Like, and like, not to get too far into it, Kang the Conqueror is one of my favorite supervillains. And just so, outside of this movie, just, just outside in of this movie, period. I have wanted Kang in the MCU for years. I just love everything he brings to the table. And even before it was announced that he was going to be the next big bad. I was like, we need Kang, we need Kang, we need Kang, we need Kang. I hear we also need Kang, which is ironic because uh, there are a lot of Kangs. A council of them, if you will. Yeah, so so the the repetition of we need Kang is actually uh, it's coming. Is he like the Just guy like for this whole phase? Yes. Like, okay, so he'll be well, El Hombre Malo. There's a lot of Kang, yeah. but yeah. A lot a lot of man. Yeah, so we'll we'll talk more about Kane when he sort of comes into the story here, but um, one gripe that I did have with Phase 4 specifically that I think hopefully this is the end to that was with Phases 1 through 3, there was a very clear vision following casually to not so casually. I, I felt like you could feel at the end of every movie, this is what's coming. There are hints of Thanos all throughout phases one through three before you ever even they, see him. You'd be surprised though. Like they're, they're a lot less sprinkled than you think. That's fair. Like there's the post credit scene of Avengers had a quick little nod to him. I believe age of Ultron had another guardians of the galaxy. It kind of knew that he was, existed. that was when he like first was like, but like confirmed right in guardians. 
I, I mean, you saw his face in both okay. the Avengers and Age of Ultron post-credit scenes. Um, and I believe Age of Ultron was when he did the the infamous "fine, I'll do it myself" line. <laughs> and then we learned a little more about him in Guardians, but we didn't really see him take up significant time on a movie screen mm-hmm. until Infinity War. Yeah, but I guess what I'm what I'm getting at is with Phase Four, I really struggled to see where this story was going, and I felt like I had to dive in as deep as Sean has in order to understand what the MCU is doing. I felt like, A, none of these movies really hold up on their own. They're not good enough mm-hmm. individually for me to enjoy them. So therefore, the only enjoyment that I can really get is by trying to piece together this larger story. Mm-hmm. And I didn't know when any of it was coming. I mean, there are still characters that were hinted at in Phase 4 that have not even gotten confirmed movies yet like yep. we don't know when they're coming and so that was just it was really hard for me to to palette that because I didn't know what was coming I felt like every movie its only purpose to was to be like hey this is coming and you're gonna pay money for that too it, it felt very capitalistic yeah. and it was just frustrating I the the running conspiracy theory with Marvel fans right now is that that is directly related to the changing in Disney CEOs mm-hmm. because and it came at an unfortunate time like right at the end of this yep. big successfully done cohesive story where they had to start yeah. anew so that makes sense and, and we just saw that with HBO as well because they just had a, a changing of power at their top most executive mm-hmm. uh, branch and what that resulted in was the just the cutting of tons of content that people were really excited for just to be replaced by like objective cash grabs yeah and my my last point with this here is that i know bob Iger hasn't been back for a very long time mm-hmm. I, I think it's only been a couple of months here but already there have been noticeable changes in terms of the pace of the mcu and i think he's really trying to scale back on that because there are only two confirmed shows coming out this year compared to the i believe six in 2022 yeah which, four was the densest phase yet if without a doubt the shows. Shit it was crazy it lasted a little over two years and yeah it, it was madness so a multiverse if you may yeah <laughs> <laughs> nice why but I'm you're ready. back on the show but they're they're only releasing two shows this year Three films have been confirmed, and I know they've already been like, we're taking a step back. Like, we're not worried about churning out content. That's we very know good. There are things co- like, because think about it the the Infinity Saga took ten, not ten years, eh, ten years to flesh out. Yeah. Endgame came out in 2019. The first Iron Man came out in 2008. Like, yeah. It, that's crazy. It takes a long time to set that stuff up, and I, I mean, I think the payout was well worth it. We got two really fun movies at the end of it. And I I really think with this multiverse saga now, they really tried to rush it. Because, I mean, th- it, this was set to end phase six in oh, wow. 2026 or 2027, which only would have been a, what, six-year span? So I, I think they're going like, all right, we saw what worked before. We saw that the quality has dipped so let's take a step back. So I, I I don't think we'll start to see them revert back to form for a little bit. But my hope is that with Guardians of Galaxy 3 coming out in May, 
and the Marvels coming out at the end of the year that we'll see that like refreshed sense of polish and care and like and not not to make a funny joke here or stupid joke but looking out Please. for the little guy oh that's nice uh i think that's a great way to uh we gave our spoiler warning and then didn't actually start talking about this movie so <laughs> let's let's talk about the little guy so this movie starts off with a hint it's something that comes up later and i really like how they sort of slowly piece together what janet was up to in the quantum realm you want to talk about that hint as if someone who was maybe five minutes late to the movie because our entire street was crowded with fire trucks uh, who didn't see it. <laughs> yes. Uh, hypothetically. Yeah, um, hypothetically. So sorry for burning that building down. I apologize. It's okay. I know you hated the kids that lived in there. So Sean, you'll have to let me know if I'm wrong about this, but uh, I have seen every movie in the MCU except for the first two Ant-Man movies, actually. Uh-oh. Um, so I came into this isolated story pretty much brand new which i i actually think may have helped my viewing experience so we see this female character she's in the quantum realm by herself uh it looks like she's maybe farming or something just trying to survive and then there's this alien plane crash and she goes to check it out she's getting attacked by these scary monsters and then this man who looks close to death saves her by shooting the monsters and he's like where am i and then we cut to paul rudd on earth and all of this will come up later but i i felt like it was a good hint about an hour into the movie because it, it really does take its time explaining what that was about an hour into the movie i was like i really hope they explain what the heck that was i didn't know who janet was i didn't realize that that was her in the precursor and even though I know Jonathan Majors. I foolishly did not realize that that was even him. That was probably just on me. But I didn't realize anything that was going on in that, that first section there. And so as the story kind of pieces together, as Janet gives more and more of her backstory, it felt like it kept the plot moving because we're getting these pieces of the story at hand, but then it's also weaving in this backstory and so we're getting this backstory that's all coming together right as the main story is also kind of reaching where it's trying to get to. And I actually felt like it was pretty successful. I don't know if you guys felt the same way. Yeah, well, I also am in a similar boat where I have not seen the other Ant-Man movies. I would say I've, I've probably seen 80 to 85% of the Marvel movies. Can't say the same for the TV shows. But, like, I get it. I got a general idea about what's going on. With the exception of I have not seen either of the two prior ant-man movies and so i was worried about that watching this one because it's like maybe if you jump one and you get into the second one like no big deal but to miss the first two <laughs> and then jump to the third seemed like a, a it would be a big leap and it to me didn't bother me too too much maybe i was just paying extra close attention because i wanted to make sure i was understanding what was happening but i felt like fully filled in on what was happening i'm interested to hear what you have to say about the casual fans not knowing what's going on, because I felt like my hand was held pretty pretty well all the way through. I, as someone who's, who has not been tapped into this universe probably since Endgame, like to the level I was, uh, felt like I walked down, uh, walked into that movie theater, sat down, and was like handed a test in a class that I haven't <laughs> enrolled in. So it was a little frightening, but that's on me. Like I don't expect the movie to just like be like, hey, guy who doesn't usually see these, here's everything you need to know wrapped up in a way that's cinematically pleasing. 
But that but might that, be a problem. That well, I mean, I feel like the whole part of the MCU is it requires commitment. And I am well aware of the fact that I can't slight the movies for not explaining things for someone like me who doesn't consume all of it. I just think it's a, a barrier for entry for no, that's fans. that's fair. But yeah. like Sean was saying earlier, and like I I agree with him, those first three phases you can kind of step in at any point and they're still telling cohesive stories so i didn't think it was quite as bad as the phase four movies with like i'm jumping in and i'm completely confused but it it certainly would have been confusing so that makes sense i know the biggest thing for me and again not to get ahead here but was the relationships between the ant family i I think that was ant family i love that for lack of a better term I, i think that was uh not explained the yeah, best. I was very I, confused with the relationship. I think were. the movie did a great job of introducing what was new. And there was a lot of new things in Quantumania. But I think anything that required prior viewing either just went way over everyone's head, wasn't acknowledged, wasn't... Uh, like, my biggest example here was the relationship between Scott and Hope which is a real movie relationship, certainly would not have made the Valentine's Day episode because, God, like they, it, it just was not explained in this or shown that's, in this movie at all. Uh, Evangeline Lilly's character? Yes. Hope. Yeah. yeah. On the way out, Juliet and I had to look up if they were dating or if they were siblings or what was going on. Well, we genuinely they kiss, though? I don't believe right so. Right at the end, they No, kiss. they just say that they love each other and they get real close, but we were like, what is the dynamic here? We have no idea. Yeah, so I... I when I alluded to that fresh perspective earlier, I went to go see this with my girlfriend, Erin, and she is the bi- one of the biggest Marvel skeptics I know. Like, she has seen maybe two, I knew I liked her. two or three Marvel movies, and it's just like, I can never get into it. It's too much. It's too confusing. I'm just not into that whole thing, and you know, cool, fine, whatever. I don't know how I convinced her to see this with me, but we go out of the theater, and she was just like, I got to be honest, what the hell was up with, <laughs> with Evangeline Lilly? Like, are they dating? Are they siblings? Like, and she had no idea. And I was like, yeah, they really, they, they really kind of shoved Evangeline Lily to the side here. Yeah. And they're separated most of the story trying so, to get to each other. Yeah. And like, that didn't help things. Yeah. But also, like, I, I feel like both of those characters were focused on other relationships that weren't their own. Mm hmm. Like, Scott was more focused on Cassie. Hope was more focused on Janet and being like, Mom, why didn't you tell me that this happened? (laughs) Mom, you've been in there for 30 years. Oh, my God. Mom, you've been fucking Bill Murray. (laughs) Yeah, that's something you should scream from the rooftops. Guys, I have something to admit. I've been fucking Bill Murray for a long time. Why are you just now telling me this? Well... (laughs) because <laughs> I didn't really love his performance in this movie. <laughs> Brett, friends don't lie to each other. You, they don't lie, but they also sometimes will lie. <laughs> you want to know something fun about Bill Murray's character? This is a to. completely new character, not in the comics, totally original. Krylar was just never a character prior to this movie, and God, was he disappointing. <laughs> yeah, he, he felt like his character in... Um... In Ghostbusters, a character that I don't love just aged up a lot. And it was like, why is this 85-year-old man such a douchebag like player? <laughs> like, this doesn't fit at all. I, it was just weird. I wish Bill Murray had a different character in the MCU. 
I really wish. Yeah, because I do like him as an actor. He should be Spider-Man. <laughs> that would be awesome. Anything is possible with the Spider-Verse at this yeah. point. And with the with the different uh, dimensions that we are now seeing, it's it's certainly possible. Spider-Bill. Spider-Bill. <laughs> yeah, so the, the, the movie takes, like Sean said earlier, it does not take very long to get into the, the quantum realm. It really only takes like 10 minutes. We get that establishing scene in the quantum realm but then we go to earth and paul rudd gives sort of like the the voiceover let's all get caught up here on where i've been and voiceover especially like the cringy i'm walking down the street giving a voiceover is super cliched but i actually kind of liked it it felt like it was really self-aware it's tongue-in-cheek yes it It, fits with the character of Scott Lang exactly so much Ant-Man is like a, a quirky fun character and it really felt at home in this world I thought it was that whole sequence it, it was only like five minutes long maybe but I thought it was really funny it really quickly establishes his arc for the movie that I thought actually helped make this sort of like a cohesive thing he has a pretty clear arc that's in line with his daughter that this opening scene actually establishes so he's talking about his book. It shows him doing a book reading, and it shows he's kind of just like a pompous asshole now, which is like not who, as I understand it, Scott Lang should be. But he saved the world. He's kind of just vibing now, and he's lazy, and he's not really doing anything to save the day. Yeah, you know, he said in his book, look out for the little guy, and that's going to be something I bring up a lot here mm-hmm. because I think that was the definition of – it's the definition of Scott's Marvel arc is he's always the little guy in, a, in different ways. And I think at the beginning of this movie, he was the little guy in the sense of what is he doing for society? Yeah. And everybody around him is doing these big and bold things, and Scott's just kind of having a um, blah, 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 blah. He's thinking. Oh, he's thinking. He's thinking. Scott has imposter syndrome. There wow. we go. Yes, that's pretty real. I just want to say, too, I think that I had a bit of a realization about my relationship with that character, Scott Lang, because I was excited for this movie because he's one of my favorite characters in the MCU, which is hilarious. Because you haven't seen those movies. I haven't seen one of his movies, but I've seen him in so many other things and I've grown to love him. Never saw an Ant-Man movie. He's just Paul Rudd, and Paul Rudd's a a very lovable person. Uh, But... His daughter, Cassie, is a really important piece throughout the story. This isn't her, that that actress's first time in the MCU, right? Yeah, Cassie's been recast, I think, about three different times. Because she, well, in the first Ant-Man, she was like a Mm six-year-old. Ant-Man and the Wasp, they recast her again, I believe, to make her a little older. Endgame, she, you know, a bit of a time jump there. She got five years older, so they recast her with, I forget who it was. And then for absolutely no reason they replaced her with Catherine Newton. The reason is Catherine Newton is fun to look at. Yes, I I am ashamed <laughs> to say that the, the two people that I liked to look at the most in this movie were the oldest and the youngest people in this movie. I was pleased to find out Catherine Lang is actually 26. Okay, so I, I had a story about that. So when I got home from the movie, I spoke with my partner, Colleen, and they were like, hey, do you, do you have fun in that movie? You, you're like, did you like looking at Cassie the whole time? And I was like, 
Yes, but <laughs> but I looked up her profile. She's older than me, which is wild. It's wild because she's what she's supposed to be in high school, eighteen or nineteen, probably. I yeah. actually had no idea she was twenty six until right now. <laughs> you just okay. thought I was really creepy for like three seconds right there, didn't you? I mean, <laughs> I thought she'd be like twenty one, twenty two, not twenty six. Yeah. Um, but her character. I, I thought she did a, a fine job, even if it was weird that they had to recast her. Um, but it is strange because it's like I didn't have to. I checked her age out of curiosity about how old she actually was, not because I thought that she was like 18 or younger. It was very clear to me like she's older. This is an, this is very much an adult woman. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But her character is really important for for both this story and for Scott Lang's arc. Marvel arc as a whole. too. Yes. Yes. We see. She is sort of like a social justice warrior. We meet her the first time in this movie. Uh, she's been arrested for just like her fighting dad. some cops at a protest, which I think is super on the nose and funny. But we see right away this girl really cares about people. She's willing to put herself at risk if it means standing up for people, which she reams her dad for. He's being a lazy asshole and not caring about anybody, but... His daughter's going to jail, fighting for people, but he's a literal Avenger. Why is he not doing that? He could be having such a profound impact on the world. And I really like how they handle her plotline as well. I'm excited to see how she develops as a character through the MCU because it would have been so, oh my God, it would have been so easy for them to make her an unbearable character given her given her motivation as somebody who, who like is very obviously like they don't say this but she's like she's like a leftist she's somebody who's into political activism they could have made her so annoying but instead she's like she's uh, an advocate for like collectivism and um human rights and and she's all about like you know anti-individualism etc etc but buzzword 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 they should have yeah they should have made her terminally online. That would have been so good. I wish she would have been a fem cell. Oh, uh, they, they dealed with too many terminally online people during She-Hulk. I don't know if they needed more God, of that. I didn't, real. I didn't check that one out. They establish sort of where Paul Rudd's character needs to go through this movie. And then right away, like Sean was saying, they end up in the quantum realm. And... This is where, at least for a while, this movie really lost me. This might just be my opinion, but I genuinely think a lot of the world here just looks horrible. It's mm -hmm. all CG. And especially, I mean, the last big budget CG movie that I saw like this was Avatar, which even though the entire movie is CG, the world, the environment, the characters it feels so real. Like I feel like I'm actually in this world and I'm looking at the quantum realm and it just feels like they're in a video game. It looks really bad to me. And so for a large portion of this movie, I was just thinking about how like none of this feels real. And that even if I was liking the things that the characters were experiencing and the changes that they were going through, it certainly took me out of it a few times because there were just so many moments where I was like, oh, that looks really bad. I'm looking at your notes and I'm seeing that you mentioned that it feels like uh, Star Wars at points, like in, in scene development and like space. And that was my thought process throughout like half of the, the opening of the quantum realm. 
I was just like, oh, this is like prequel Star Wars. We're on like different planets that I can recall very vividly. And the whole time it was really hard to, like the word that I kept reusing um, in describing it was that it was hard to uh, so like suspend uh, disbelief. Like the whole time I was like, these these boys are on a green screen. Mm, and yeah. it's not that I'm like trying to seek out ways to like prove that where they are is not like as immersive, but a movie like Avatar will make you believe you're there. And at no point was I like, this is a, a, a space that people inhabit and live upon. And, and that's the difference between making a movie that took you 14 yeah. years in production versus like, oh, I have to get this out in a week. Yeah. <laughs> and Sean, before you give your, your thoughts here, you ultimately have to be able to suspend your disbelief to enjoy a superhero movie because even if, like some of the older MCU movies, even if they're all in real places, they're still superheroes. Those are not real, believe it or not. You have to be able to suspend some disbelief to be able to enjoy this type of movie. And having a world that just looks so fake makes it a little bit for me personally to 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 do that. Sean, what did you think? My thoughts really don't differ a whole bunch. Mm. I thought the quantum realm was lifeless. I thought it was one of the weakest parts of the movie. It had the same thoughts about it looking like Star Wars. I I think just the environment wasn't fantastic. Yeah. Everything in the environment, the people, the, the little buildings that were alive, like the, the things that were in the environment, I thought were strong. But the environment itself, I was just like, Eh, I was going to say it, that it's all right. Same thing. I really liked the ideas that they were putting into it. It just seemed like it was executed poorly. Yes. A lot of those, you know, a lot of those in theory were really entertaining and cool. And I wanted to see them fleshed out well. And then they just kind of fell flat. Yeah. My note about star Wars was not that the world felt like the star Wars prequels because I mean, there's a lot of poorly done CG in the star Wars prequels but most of that is on character. The worlds that they're in are still either really unique places on earth or well-designed stages or sets. And so even though that movie uses a lot of very bad early CG, at points, it still feels more real than this. Where I feel it most compares to Star Wars is with the character design. A lot mm -hmm. of it feels very like cantina scene and all of these we're, we're seeing all of these really unique we're in a whole different world with a whole different not just races of people but types of beings and i felt like the whoever designed these characters had a lot of fun creating like really unique characters a lot of them were humanoid some were non-humanoid which i actually appreciate because if you're going to a completely unknown realm what are the odds that every individual there is going to be like a bipedal humanoid figure. Uh, it felt like they had a lot of fun with that, and there were some really unique and creative character designs, and I, I like looking at them. The dude with the laser for a head is like the coolest character design I've seen in a minute. From and a he Marvel was also movie. really funny. I liked he was him. Like yeah, a fun I liked character. him a lot. I was I was exceptionally disappointed when he he got he got murked. Yeah, yeah. So so talking about the world, we're now in the quantum realm. There's a really funny scene where they get captured by some people and Paul Rudd is forced to drink some ooze. And we don't know what the ooze is, but uh, it allows them to talk to these characters, which I appreciated 
it makes sense that they would be speaking a different language and it's a really goofy way to uh, acknowledge that and allow them to be able to talk with these characters kind of a cop out it is but it's fun very on brand for ant-man i thought it was more creative than in avatar where he's just like I've been speaking this language so long, it basically sounds like English. And then <laughs> talking English the rest of the movie, yeah. I thought that was kind of dumb. But uh, I thought this was pretty creative. So we're now in the quantum realm, and we meet Kang. Sean, you already kind of talked about who he is, but now that we're in the spoiler discussion, do you want to sort of establish like who his character is? Kang is a menace to society <laughs> with the powers of... Uh, 11 million gods essentially so n- not to get like too deep into Kang but he's a descendant of Reed Richards Mr. Fantastic uh, I didn't know Nathaniel that. Did Richards not know that. Nathaniel Richards is his name I believe and essentially he, he is obsessed with time and traveling to different universes messing with time and just you know that's his big shtick so he he invents his time chair, which we see in this movie as his throne, and that's uh, he's look, trying to re- regenerate the fuel source for his time chair so that he can go be a menace to other universes. And Kang is, again, there's infinite variations of him. I could talk about this for ages. I'm not as well-versed as I'd like to be in the comics. I know Kang's got a ton of really cool appearances there. But for the sake of the MCU, Kang had his first appearance in Loki on Disney+, Plus, uh, where he appeared in the last episode as He Who Remains, which, to give the long story short, Loki and his variant, Loki, uh, also known as Sylvie, get to essentially the center of the universe, where this variant of Kang is sitting at the end, controlling all time. He knows exactly what happens, when, how it happens, who's going to do it. Like He knows everything about the universe. And they, they reach him at this point, and he's like, ha-ha, I know exactly what... And, like, you know, they'll do some cheesy things, like Loki tries to pull a knife on him, and, you know, does typical prankster things. But they said... <laughs> Loki noted a prankster. But... It's established here that Kang knows exactly what's going on. Very, he knows very what powerful. he's doing. He's very calculated, but also like he's he's the sense of calculated in a sense where he can be funny about it, or he can be like, eh, "I'm gonna go conquer a whole universe, haha," and be a snarky asshole about it while he's doing it. But the big thing that kind of sets Quantumania off is. There comes to a point where suddenly he who remains does not know what's going on. There's a moment where he goes, I'm confused. I don't know what's happening. I suddenly can't see a thing. They kill him. And then timelines just start going. Yeah. So let's, let's talk about his role here. Um, yeah. He's been getting back on track. Of course. Yeah. He's, he's, it's Kang at the start of this movie who's like, where am I? Mm-hmm. And we learn slowly throughout this story that someone, we don't know who yet, defeated him. We don't know who yet, right? Uh, so actually we learn that in the post credit scene. Oh, okay. We'll get to that. Uh, at this point in the story, we don't know who defeated him yet, but they broke his time chair 
and they exiled him to the quantum realm and he's stuck here now and janet is trapped here with him and they develop this friendship just because they are the only two people stuck here it's what's going to happen and they have like a very real connection they're both very intellectual smart people and the only way for janet to get out of this situation is to help this friend fix his chair so the the main like piece here is the power core to this time mm -hmm. chair and janet helps him over the course of years and years stuck in the quantum realm fix the power core to his chair and this power core is tapped into kang's brain and so they finally fix it and she touches the chair and learns everything about who he is she sees that he's not just a bad guy he might be the worst guy of all time he she sees a, him destroying realms he's a conqueror Yes. Mega Hitler. Mega Hitler. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. Kang, Kang is a conqueror, and we know that's his title. He goes around conquering universe after universe after universe, making it his own. And we see, again, not to get super ahead of ourselves, but in this post credit scene, we see the Council of Kangs. And, Hella Kang. And, and that the, scene was taken block. directly from a, a panel in the comics. Where, you know, they're in this arena and there's a few of, like, the top-ranked Kangs, you know, planning a, to, to take over the universe, essentially. And you see all these other Kangs like, ah, hey, Kang, what are we going to do tonight? Yeah. And, and Try to take over the world. And it's a great... Anyone get that reference? No, what was that? Yeah. That's Pinky in the Brain. Yes! yes, yes. Okay, I knew I got that one. I, too, use words. So yeah, they, they fix his core and now this is the central conflict for Janet's character because the she's so adamant immediately about we cannot go back to the quantum realm because she knows Kang is there and a lot of people in the quantum realm do not like her because she was responsible for giving Kang power and he has not been able to leave the quantum realm yet but he has certainly taken control of the quantum realm he's sort of the the king and the god of the quantum realm and there are freedom fighters that are trying to fight back against him but he's essentially infinitely powerful and there's not a whole lot that they can do but janet did literally blow up kang's core to his uh to his time chair and i say literally because she used some of the pim particles to make it this massive thing mm -hmm. but kang's now goal for this movie and i'll let you guys talk about this some but he needs to somehow get his core to his chair back so that he can continue to conquer universes yeah and the only way to get this core back is with more pim particles and so that's... Who's got Pym particles, Sean? Mr. Hank Pym himself. And so that's how they get sucked into the quantum realm is because of that signal. And this is a great segue to lean into a character that I so dearly love in Marvel. My One of my favorite little goofballs, played by Corey Stoll, we have MODOK. This this character was insane. <laughs> I fucking love Modok. Modok is just like the least serious Marvel villain. He's so funny. He's just not. He can 
he is like a threatening villain, but he's just funny and stupid while doing it. And I have my thoughts about Modok, but we'll save those for a little bit later. Modok, played by Corey Stoll, who previously played Yellow Jacket in the first Ant Man. So that's a weird a callback that we you may have missed. Yeah, I was gonna say movie. that's we were talking about earlier. We were talking about ways where the casual fan is confused. Did not know what the hell was going on. Well, it's or who he was. It's a but. totally new origin story for Modok. Mm. Was because at the end of Ant Man one, essentially Ant Man just attaches Pym particles to Darren crosses his name in the movie, attached Pym particles to him in the yellow jacket suit, and he just goes teeny 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 tiny itsy bitsy teeny weeny yellow polka dot bikini <laughs> all the way down into the Never quantum heard that realm. <laughs> But then he gets refitted and tells his origin story in a very funny way uh, in the movie. But he gets into this suit. And the, he's got the, little baby legs and yeah, arms. The, uh, and he's just a big head. Oh God, what I, for, I always forget what the M in MODOK is. It's machine? Like, uh, uh, I want machine of... Or no, it's machine organism designed only for killing. Yeah. Or um, men... men M stands for Mark. That's his first name. <laughs> I initially had some serious issue with this character because all I could picture was George Lopez and Sharkboy oh and Lava Girl. I'm so glad yep. you said it. I thought the same thing. Uh, the TV head guy. It looked so goofy but by the end of it I felt like they were but, really just embracing how goofy he all, looked and, and I was like, And okay, that's exactly kind of what you do with MODOK. Is MODOK is not a character to be taken seriously. There is no good way to make him live action <laughs> Yeah, and I think they did this about the best they could. You said George Lopez TV guy. Put some respect on Mr. Electric's name. <laughs> My, My God. God. I was getting to a point with that somewhere. But MODOK really is the one who brings on everyone down to the quantum realm. There was a very real lull in my experience where they end up in the quantum realm and I'm kind of just like thinking about how bad it all looks. And it was a little bit disheartening because I really enjoyed the first 10 minutes of the movie. But I really, really feel like the movie picked back up around... The movie has a pretty long climax. And I think it really starts... Both of my co-hosts are making goofy faces at my use of that word. Sexual faces, let's Um, be clear. I have no concept of what that means. It starts... The the climax sort of starts with Ant-Man and his daughter Cassie have been captured. And Kang is using Cassie, essentially threatening hey, if you don't get me my power core back, I'm going to kill your daughter. And so Ant-Man is now, because of that, forced to go inside of this gigantic power core to shrink it back down to give it to Kang to let him free. And this is sort of where we, we the whole story we've been seeing Ant-Man and Cassie on one side of the quantum realm and then the rest of the characters on the other end. And the whole time you can kind of feel they're working towards the same conclusion and this is where that actually happened. So Ant-Man goes in alone and he's trying to get this core. And I think there's a lot to talk about this scene because the second he gets inside, we see this, what do they call it? Like a, a probability. Yeah, it, it was a probability a probability storm. Yes, exactly. And it's essentially just every decision you could possibly make in your particular scenario comes out so so there are all these ant-man clones now so as soon as scott starts questioning himself another version of him comes out and then more versions and more and more and more 
even to the point where uh, Baskin Robbins Scott comes out. <laughs> Is that from the original Ant Man movies? Yeah. So at, after he got arrested and was like, he was a struggling ex con, uh, he got a job at Baskin Robbins. That's funny. My dream. So I did have. I, overall, I really enjoyed this scene. I thought it was pretty fun, and it was important for the characters. But I did have one gripe, especially in a everything everywhere all at once, or a, a post everything everywhere all at once world, where we've seen these sort of like infinite possibility decision trees come to fruition. It was very annoying to me that somehow in every infinite possibility every single Scott Lane is just a perfect clone that's doing the exact same thing, except for one Baskin Robin Scott that's kind of just thrown in there for a joke. At the end of the day, I don't think it matters a whole lot for what the scene is trying to get at, but there's so much creativity that could be had with that scene. And what we get is the real Scott, 10,000 exact clones that are just not important and have no real character other than just being other Scott and then Baskin Robin Scott, which is just played for a joke. So that was a little bit frustrating. If I was understanding it correctly, wouldn't the probability storm have like kicked off in that exact moment? So I guess that yes, but how is he, how is there a Baskin Robin Scott there? If that's the case, because haha, funny <laughs> make you laugh. And it was funny. It was pretty funny. Not anywhere near as funny as the child sensory videos playing my entire movie watching experience. I can't believe this happened. It's worth noting that the entire time I watched this movie, uh, there's a literal newborn child two rows behind me that was being shown like child sensory videos at medium volume the whole movie. That is actually like, so annoying. It was like I would have been very angry. Wheels on the bus. I heard like verb- like in every scene where it got like quiet and emotional. Everybody in the theater is quiet, and then you could hear Baby Shark playing in the background. <laughs> like, without fail, for the full runtime of the movie, beginning to end. Do they know that there's a movie on, and their kid could watch the movie? I think the the it was, like, literally a baby. It's not as enriching as Baby Shark. Oh, that's so, fair. Yeah. That's fair. You gotta understand. If I, I'm a very passive person when it comes to, like socially contentious situations that were like you know it's not a huge deal what the outcome is i would have lost my shit in that moment like i definitely would have yelled at those people because like yeah like that is the most faux pas thing i could probably imagine could be happening that's probably worse than talking through the whole movie Uh, yeah absolutely we were just laughing the whole time it was so (laughs) if i was invested in that movie i'd be so mad but the fact that i'm not a Marvel person to the extent where I was like, I need every ounce of this. I was just like, this is going to be great to talk <laughs> about tomorrow. If that was in the Thursday night showing, God, I would I, like, again, like Brett, they would have been killed. I'm a very passive person in many situations. And while I think I would have said something here, I know other people in that theater would have like just been absolutely brutal. Yeah. I saw the last, Marvel movie that I saw opening Thursday night was the Spider-Man movie, which I did enjoy. But after that experience, I decided I will probably never see a Marvel movie on opening night again, because that's when the diehard people go. And it was, that's when Sean goes, he just raised his hand. And I think I missed a significant portion of that movie because every time any character did anything, every person in the audience just screamed. And I missed all significant portions of dialogue because people were just yelling 
every time a superhero did a superhero thing, and it was very frustrating. Spider-Man was particularly bad about yeah, that. I'm going to start doing that with like A24 tropes, <laughs> where if I just see Lucas Hedges in any movie, You're I just lose scream. my fucking mind. That would be a really funny bit. <laughs> uh, but back to this scene with the, the possibility thing. Even though I had that small gripe, I did think it was cute with the infinite possibilities thing. While all of these Scots would be different and have their own unique traits, it's important that Scott, who he is, there is a central line that runs through all of the possibilities of who he could become. And for him, that's his daughter. And so when it's realized that, hey, we're doing this for her, all of the Scots work together to get him up there. And it's, it's this really funny, I, I don't know if you guys have seen World War Z, yeah. but <laughs> there's a really funny moment where all of the Scots form into this one massive like hill for the main Scot to climb up on top of. And it looks like the zombies in World War Z <laughs> climbing on top of each other to get up a like 300 foot wall. It was very funny. I thought it was a, a really funny scene, but Evangeline Lilly shows up again. This is when they finally meet and she helps save the day. And yeah, they, they shrink the power core back down and Kang takes it. And this is like, I guess, the true climax of the movie because now he's got the power core. Everyone needs to work together to figure out what the hell do we do now because the most infinitely powerful person on the planet now has his power back. The only thing that was stopping him from being the most infinitely powerful person on the planet. He has it now. Yeah, 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 he has it now. Yeah. <laughs> and... Yeah. Uh-huh. So yeah. so we reach the climax here and this is another good Cassie moment. She rescues sort of like this we haven't talked about her yet, but this like badass rebel leader character that's also in jail with her. She rescues her and it's they're tasked with hey, we know Kang feels impossible to beat. I would imagine any person in any revolution feels like, hey, these odds are impossible. But Cassie gets this really cool moment where she speaks out to the entire quantum realm and is like, we can do this. We just need to come together. And it's this really good moment, and it's true to her character because we've already understood, even though this girl is young, she cares about everyone, and she's passionate about fighting for everyone. And so all of these freedom fighters, all of the down and out people, we see them sort of coming together to get ready for this final battle against Kang and his blue-faced cronies. Mm -hmm. Now, if you lack media literacy, what Marvel is trying to say here is that we should overthrow the American government. Yes, correct. Kang is uh, like a stand-in, like a pseudonym for Joe Biden. <laughs> and what this movie wants us to do- very similar. Is this is all like a, an allegory for January sixth? <laughs> this whole last sequence is just a retelling of that that day, you know, and that's what Marvel's going for here. It was nice to know you, buddy. If bright, <laughs> bright, this your life is in Bryce's hands right now because if he leaves this in the edit, you're done for. It's happening. It's over. <laughs> On January sixth, I was in Fontana, Wisconsin, working a shift at the coffee mill. Uh, I have an alibi. I was not there. Will anyone corroborate that story for uh, you? I will have nope. to track down Jordan Bobek, my coworker, who probably does not listen to this podcast. Uh, and she will confirm because I had to explain to her what senators were and why it was important <laughs> uh, that they may die. <laughs> uh, so we're at the climax of the movie to get back on track. One thing I really liked about this, 
it's so cheesy and cliche, but anytime people run into battle screaming war cries like revolution, it's going to work on me. It's so cheesy, but I'm on board. You know what else is cheesy? Speaking of that, is this is a great big moment for Scott Lang. Yes. And let me tell you, he's big. And not to re- rehash something I've definitely said twice already, but like, look out for the little guy. Really is Scott's arc throughout this movie. And this and, is when it finally comes to fruition. And, and his Marvel career as a whole, where Ant Man's always been like this you know, am I really an Avenger? Am I just here because they need an extra set of hands? They need somebody small. They need somebody who's real fucking big. <laughs> Like, he's just never really felt at home. He's a role player. Yeah, he's never been a big player. The Ant-Man movies have always been just, like, these comic relief movies uh, and kind of just introducing Ant-Man or carrying on with another story. And so this is really his first big, serious, I am the star, I'm going to take down the villain, this is my moment, uh, moment. Wait, so I have a Marvel question about this. Yes, sir. So... The scene that kicks, or let's say this, the reveal that kicks that big stardom scene off for Scott Lang is when he shows up to the battle bigger than he was before when he was big. And it had been a question that had come to my mind earlier in the movie. I was like, hey, man, hey, we know you can get bigger, but sometimes it just seems like you still can't win the fight. Have you ever thought to just get even bigger? <laughs> Have you like, and I assumed that there was some kind of limitation that I wasn't aware of, but then near the end of the movie, they're like, oh yeah, he's just bigger now. And I'm like, why didn't we do that, this there, before? There is a little bit of a limitation to that though, because the bigger he gets, the more energy he uses up. Uh, and so we, we see that with Cassie a little bit when she gets big for the first time being like really winded and really hungry really want some limes after she did it and and so that is the biggest limitation of turning big is that scott just gets gassed if he gets too big for too long that makes sense yeah but it's important to note here like sean was saying this is the scott standing up for the little guy moment this is him coming into who he is and i think what works so well about this and why i ultimately left this movie thinking i i really did enjoy that was he only got there because he was inspired by his daughter's speech, by who she is and by his love for her. And we've already established he's not doing everything that he could to stand up for the little guy, even though that, that he's professing that that's what he is and what he does. And ultimately, at the end of the day, even though this is a huge multi-universal story, at the core of it is this relationship between a father and a daughter. And the things that the two of them go through, they only happen because of their relationship. The development that they go through only happens because of their relationship. And I think that that's absolutely essential to tell a compelling story. Like you need these sort of small scale things to ground yourself if you're going to have all these huge concepts and crazy ideas that you're putting on display. And so I I really did enjoy it. So at this point, unfortunately, we've run into a time crunch. We've got some busy boys on this podcast. So Brett and Wyatt are going to have to leave us. Um, and I'm, we're just going to close this out with just Sean. Final note, Sean, pleasure to talk to you today. Uh, a, you. B, we didn't get a chance to naturally get to this point, so I'm just going to throw it in here. There's a point later in the movie where Jonathan Majors, his like sleeve gets ripped off. And I knew this before. 
but we really got to see him just be fucking jacked. That dude is huge. He's so ripped, dude. I didn't it's see crazy. any abs. It was disappointing. <laughs> All I'm saying is Creed 3. Yes, coming out later. I'm very excited for yes. that movie. So, I'm really excited that Jonathan Majors is a part of this whole shindig now. Yeah. He's, fan- he's fantastic. Him, but I really liked him in this movie. He's a, a very, very talented actor, and he doesn't have a ton to do. He He's playing sort of like a, a very stoic person, but you can really feel his rage when that comes out. And so, yeah, I was I was very happy, and I'm excited to see more of him. We'll, in that we'll talk about him in the end credits deep dive, too. Uh, I've only seen him before in Last Black Man in San Francisco playing perhaps the most different role from this movie you possibly could. So just to see, like, the breadth of his acting talent is pretty wild. Uh, I thought he did well, and he seems like such a lovely guy. I'm glad that he's getting some name recognition now yeah i i expect him to be one of the biggest actors working in the next probably five years but uh any closing thoughts Wyatt, before you head out i'm glad you guys enjoyed this movie this was a bad movie respectfully (laughs) we had a whole premise and it was like we got to beat this guy and then they beat this guy and then they're like who's still here there's so many of them there's so many of this guy you solved nothing absolutely everything we did unless i am they solved the character problem though yeah, well, like... That's what this movie was about. Well, I... It still feels like... Like, you see, you're like, thank God, they've beaten Kang. He's into this, like, battery thing. And then they're like, hey, Kang will return. And I was like, well, what the fuck was that for? They want a battle in the war. Yeah. Because, like, exactly. the, the quantum realm... And I don't like that setup of... I, it's part of the Marvel, like, formula. I get it. I just think it's frustrating to watch a movie that you feel like should have a natural conclusion... Mm-hmm. And then that natural conclusion is going to be like seven movies and 14 hours later. It it gives the MCU another Paul Revere, which again, we'll get into cool. a little bit later. Paul Ruddier. All right. Um, that's my way, time. That's Thank your you. Cue to get the hell out of here. That was um, horrible. I'll send off my, uh, my, my love you here and I am going to go make some coffee and train some people. Cool. Farewell. Say you love you. I did. I did say that. No, you said I'm going to do it here and then didn't do it. Okay. I love you. There you go. Thank you. All right. So we don't have a whole lot to talk about now that it's just me and Sean, but there was one moment in the climax that I really liked. A little bit before the climax, we see that Hank Pym's ants that he's been working on have developed (laughs) an entire civilization and are these like advanced creatures now. It's hilarious. It, it 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 really was a nice nod to the first couple of movies that were, I don't know, very small a- scale, ants, right? Ants played a significant part in just Scott's development as a hero, so it was nice to see them back. Yeah. So without that context, I was just like, oh, Ant Man has like ants now. That's really and, funny. And to my my last point, I wanted to make before the end credit scene. I promise I'll make this quick. But it was nice to see something from the first two movies make mm-hmm. a return. Because many of the great side characters that Ant-Man had just weren't there. And I I can't remember all the actors off the top of my head. But if you've seen Ant-Man 1 and 2, you know Luis. You know, like, all the security guys. Uh, You know, Kurt, played by David Dastomachian, who comes back in this movie, plays the little blob guy. Oh, that's fun. I I love that, I think his name's Bleb, so that's a nice little... (laughs) He's got holes now. Yeah. <laughs> I I loved that character. It was so, so funny. And I, I think all the side characters that were introduced here were great, but I really would have loved to see just some kind of nod from uh, all of Scott's con friends, from his ex-wife, mm-hmm. 
from all the side characters that made the first two movies good. But I will say I love the side characters here. Special shout out to William Jackson Harper. I, I who's did. that? Uh, he played uh, what's his name? The mind reader. Oh yes. I can't I can't yes. remember his name. Yes. but I, I really, really did like his performance. that whole character or that excuse me that whole scene where they force them to drink the ooze and you've got his character drink the ooze drink, drink the, the ooze. ooze drink the ooze <laughs> uh, and he's reading minds that that whole scene was really really funny and sort of established like oh this is a pretty diverse and unique world I liked that but glad to hear you liked the ant showing up they they do this thing in the climax where it's also sort of a cliche where good guys are fighting bad guys and they're losing the battle but then over the horizon new good guys show up to save the day it's lord of the rings does it a bunch a lot of the other marvel movies do it a bunch it's really cliche but something about it just being big ants coming to save the big day ants. and then also <laughs> the um like the big live building yeah. ship things yeah. just it, came in and, it was and, goofy. And anyway i started blasting you know <laughs> it was so goofy style. but because it was like a fun little twist i actually thought that even though it was cliche again it worked pretty well and that that is often where i feel like marvel is at its best like marvel movies in general are really funny and so even though they're not doing anything like technically that i've never seen before or crazy complex or funny it's like where I feel like they're at their best is when they're taking these superhero tropes, where they're taking these fun action scenes and they're twisting them on their head and just being a fun time. That's when I most enjoy Marvel movies. So I, I was I really felt like that was on display here. Yeah, and so that, that, that might was, be why I left this movie pretty That happy. was a great scene in the movie for me. I, I really enjoyed that. I do we mentioned what was his name? Bleb? Bleb, yeah. Uh <laughs> this is I think that's completely irrelevant. But I just need to take a second because I have a platform to give my rant on the amount of holes that a human has. <laughs> because it is not as simple as this movie makes it out to be. Humans do not have seven holes. First, I want to start this. I'm going to try to make this quick. Sean, does a straw have one or two holes? Oh, Christ almighty. Um, There's no right answer. I would make an argument that a straw is a very long hole. Okay, so one hole. It's it's an open-ended hole. Okay. That is an essential question to the question of how many holes does a human have? Because this movie says seven, which would be two ears, two nose. I'm doing math on my fingers. One mouth, one pee hole, a poo hole. and a poo hole. That's seven. But your two nostrils make up one nasal cavity. So that's already two holes that might be one. Your nasal cavity connects with your mouth. So that's three holes that you can make the argument are one. Your ears all go into your head. You can make the argument that that is one hole just with two openings. Could be one. Yeah. It could be one. It's up for debate. All of those holes, I guess not not the ears. The ears are separate, but the nose and the mouth all funnels down through your body, through your intestinal tract, and comes out one of two directions. So that is your your body is essentially one big straw, just with a lot of different openings. I, I, on I'd the argue end. with the split pads that there are still multiple holes in the human body, 
and, and maybe we'll have the the whole episode down <laughs> we, the, the well, whole what, pod is coming. Hey, when are we are, are we gonna watch Holes? Wow, I say we like I'm a regular a guest movie. on this podcast. No, if we ever but, do Holes, you're welcome to join. Oh us, fuck yeah, I love Holes. Uh, but let's get back on track. I I just had to take that that moment. The movie ends after the the climax. I really enjoyed it. It was a fun action scene. It closed character arcs, and that's sort of what you have to do in that moment. Mm-hmm. But in the MCU, credit sequences are very important, and they are often lost on me because I don't keep as up-to-date as I should. So I, I want to give Sean an opportunity to talk about what are the credit scenes, what are they setting up, what should MCU fans and non-MCU fans alike be expecting from this franchise going forward. So, you know, if you've seen a Marvel movie, you know there are post-credit scenes, and these are notoriously used either... Some of them are funny jokes, like one of them is... I, and I believe this is from Spider-Man, where Captain America famously sits in the chair for the gym class video, and he's like, so, you decided to stay through the whole movie. <laughs> and, like, Deadpool Deadpool 2, I believe, is a funny nod to Ferris Bueller in that yeah. sense. I love the uh, the end credit scene at the end of Avengers when they're all the, just sitting in the, 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 shawarma. the shawarma shop yeah. eating food. Like, that's really funny. That's a funny story about that. Chris Evans was shooting another movie at the time. I forget which one it is, but he had a beard for that movie. Did they just leave that in that scene? Well, yes. However, they they had him like cover his face while they were shooting, so you couldn't see the beard at all, and that's why he was facing away from the camera. Oh, that's really funny. And they were like, "Oh, we got to get this funny scene. Let's bring him back." But he, you know, he's looking grizzly at the time, so. A nice, nice little Easter egg to look out for. But uh, anyway, the Ant Man had two post credit scenes, and one of them I kind of want to tie in with uh, Scott's little monologue at the end of the movie, because uh, he did something parallel to the beginning, where he's walking down the street, uh, kind of narrating the events, saying, "Hey, we saved the world once again," and then goes into this moment where he's like. Well, remember when Kang said, if you kill me, that there's going to be more. And what if we all die because of this? What if, like, an infinite amount of Kangs comes to the Earth and, we're, and like, everything's going to explode? And then he's just like, nah, that's not going to happen. <laughs> and- oh, yes, yes. I, I did want to mention, I'm sorry to interrupt you. After the climax, we return to Earth, and it's a fun callback to how the movie started with the voiceover. And again, I'm just reminded, Paul Rudd is such a funny, likable actor. Mm-hmm. It's like he's saying the goofiest, cheesiest on the nose things. And it's like, I still enjoy it. He's just a very charismatic guy. Yeah. And, and so they do that. Paul Rudd does that little monologue and movie just goes into the credits and we get this first credit scene. And the first one we talked about a little bit, uh, into the podcast where it's the council of Kang's, is what it's known as in the comics, and it, it's exactly what you think it is, a council of Kangs uh, from dozens and dozens and dozens of universes, and this can include, like, a Pharaoh Kang. This can include He Who Remains, like we talked about in Loki, or even the Kang we saw in Ant-Man. More fun character designs here. Uh, who didn't? We didn't talk about this at all. Who That Kang pretty much is dead. Oh, interesting. Yeah, I mean... I don't see any reason why that Kang is coming back. But unfortunately for the MCU, there are a lot of Kangs. A shit ton of Kangs. And and this is where I really want to applaud Jonathan Majors here. Because in this movie alone, you see him play like 
four or five different versions mm-hmm. of Kang in these post credit scenes. And each of them have their own distinct personalities, their own distinct character traits. Different accents. All with one goal. To rule all time, always. To conquer. Yeah. Uh, to they should it, call him the Conqueror. Kang the Conqueror. That's got a good ring to it. That, that, wow, that would be fantastic if that was his name. <laughs> that would be great. I love the alliteration. But they show this Council of Kangs, and it's very, very similar to this Thanos scene after the first Avengers movie. Mm, where, yeah, that's a good point. Where you're getting a tease. Like, this is the MCU saying... So we know you know who this guy is. We know you've seen him a couple times now. Here's what he's capable of doing. He's a very legitimate threat to the safety and the well-being of the universe. So the Council of Kangs is in action, and we get a really good chance to see what phases 5 and 6 of the MCU are shaping up to. And that unlike Thanos, it's not going to be just one single individual that the Avengers and other teams and other individuals are going to have to deal with. But it's going to be this massive group of Kangs that, I mean, just seems damn near impossible to stop. And that, and that's that's pretty much it with the first post credit scene. But then... Numero dos. And this is when people start leaving the theater, and I go, ha ha, you idiot. Don't leave the theater <laughs> yet. Uh, there's a second, arguably more important post credit scene. Uh, and so this was kind of a sneak peek of Loki season two. Oh, yes. I, I, was, I was really curious what you had to say about this one, because I was pretty much completely lost what was going on. So... I I made the Paul Revere comment earlier. Yeah, that went completely over my head. So, Loki is the only person to have been exposed to Kang up until this point. He is the, he made it to the end of the universe. I guess Loki and Sylvie, his Loki variant, who goes by Sylvie, and has a weird crush on, even though they're basically the same person. That's strange. It's really fun. I, oh, man, I would love to dissect that more, but this is about Ant-Man, not Tom Hiddleston. <laughs> um, and so, and I know I talked about this a ton earlier in the podcast, but, you know, Loki gets to the end of the universe, sees what a threat Kang is, and after they kill He Who Remains, Loki goes back to TVA, the Time Variance Authority, where he spends most of his show and gets to know a lot of the people, places, and characters there. Well, he goes back and he sees that instead of statues of uh, the the time, the time, the time, the time, the time. Oh my God, I can't remember their names right now. Um, but basically, just the the ruler, the quote unquote rulers of time. They were really mechanized figureheads controlled by Kang. <laughs> Exciting, um, but he comes back to the TVA and there's statues of Kang everywhere, and he goes, "Oh shit, what have I done?" And then he goes to, you know, his partner in crime here, played by Owen Wilson, and goes, "Oh my God, Mobius! Like, what the hell is going on here?" And Wilson's just like, "Who the hell are you?" He's asking Loki that, or yep. oh, interesting. So everybody in the TVA forgot who Loki was. Whoa, Loki is the only individual who knows Kang's real threat up to this point. And so Loki season two, 
from what I understand, is basically going to be a, a bounty hunt for Kang. That sounds very compelling. And just trying to, like, see what all he's up to, because they also have the power to jump time. You know, it's the Time Variance Authority. That's what they do. And so this post credit scene sets up Loki finding Kang. Uh, so to set the stage, they are in probably mid-1900s America. They're at like a little saloon, a little... Looks like a dinner show or yeah, something. Yeah, some type of old-timey dinner show. And it's Loki and Owen Wilson's character Mobius together, who is, I assume, fully caught up to speed at this point. And then we see somebody uh, named Victor Timely, who's putting on a little bit of a show here. It's and, a hilariously on-the-nose name. <laughs> and it's dark. We hear an individual talking. The lights turn on. And it's Kang giving a presentation on time to this group of people. And you see Loki's face go, oh, my God. Roro Raggy. That's him. Roro Raggy, for lack of a better term. Setting up this second season of Loki, which I think is coming in the summer. <laughs> yeah, I don't Perfect. know off the top of my head. I, I, ever since they switched around the releases for everything, I don't know when it's coming out anymore. But I, it seems like Loki season two will be the next appearance of Kang. And so. Yeah, I liked what you were saying about Loki being the only person that knows the threat that is Kang. Because, I mean, Loki's already such a well-developed, complex character. One of the best characters of the MCU. Yes, in my I, I, I agree. Even though I haven't seen Loki or any of the shows, I like that it's his character who has historically been a villain that now has to, for the good of the universe, be the guy that stops the ultimate villain. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that that's, that's really unique. So I, I, I am excited for where the MCU is going. This, yeah. As the first movie in a new phase, coming off of a phase that I did not enjoy very much, seeing a movie that I enjoyed for the most part. I, I didn't love it, but I, I am very hopeful both with the quality of this movie and the the things to come that Sean's been talking about. I, I'm very hopeful yeah, I'm, I, and excited. This was a strong start, I believe. And adding on to your point about Loki being the perfect person to, again, for lack of a better term, be the Paul Revere here, I think Ant-Man is a great addition to that. And I think because now he's kind of had his little guy moment where he's, you know, he now knows that helping the greater good is pretty rewarding. Yeah, And so now he's having this moment where he's like, okay, I know what's coming. I, I have to, like, I, I-, I got to go. Like, I, I got to do, like, you know, he- he's got to do what he's got to do. And from from the MCU, like, as a whole perspective, I, I think that the writers or the-, the-, the concept people at Marvel had a really big task after Endgame where so many characters now that we've come to love and grown attached to are no longer a part of these stories so a lot of these maybe not to say lesser characters but people who were not necessarily at the forefront of the mcu mm-hmm. are the people that are left and so they're the people at marvel are now tasked with finding a way to incorporate these people into the greater yeah. mcu story in a more important role and i i expected that with something like Black Widow, mm-hmm. which 
was a movie that I thought was really unsuccessful, but I'm happy to say, even if it is in my mind late, I'm happy to say that it, it seems to be here. And Ant-Man's the perfect character to do that for because his whole character is he's been the little guy. He's been the Avengers role player. He fits in where he needs to, but he's a really cool character and mm-hmm. he's played by a really talented actor that I like a lot. And so I'm I'm happy to see him sort of stepping up to the plate essentially me too and i like you're starting to now slowly see this new team of avengers forming because now the original six are pretty much out of the equation they're all gone like spoiler alert if you you know really give a shit at this point but captain america's dead iron man's dead black widow's dead hulk just isn't the same anymore yeah i think he'll become that again but that's for a later discussion Hawkeye's damn near retired. Also, his actor almost died, so. Uh, yeah, that too. And I, Thor is really just a big mystery right now, especially after Love and Thunder. So. Yeah, that movie was not very good. No, so it'll be tough not my favorite. for audiences to see him again, which is unfortunate because I, I, I do like Thor a lot. Yeah, and I, I think when inevitably Thor 5 comes around, it'll be a fine movie. Hopefully they bounce back. But yeah, I think it's going to be really cool to see Ant-Man now stepping back from that. Yeah, I'm on the team, but I don't really do a whole lot role to him probably being the one to bring the team back together and say, listen, there is a massive threat out there in Kang. And if we don't do something, then we're all going to die. And I think, not to speculate too much, I'm hopeful for a crossover between him and Loki where Loki's trying to be this person and is like, Kang's coming, Kang's coming, and everybody's like, yeah, right, you tried to kill us all. <laughs> yeah, that that would add some really cool character tension. Yeah. I, I think you're absolutely right. And having Ant-Man as the person to be like, hey, so... I'm on his side the here. The worst person you know has a great point. Yeah. And I think he's one of the few characters in the MCU with that type of credibility. Yeah, totally. To band everyone together. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's he, very exciting. He did it in Endgame. He, he, got, he brought the team back together. And so now he might just do it again. Very cool. Very cool. Yeah, I'm glad to hear that you and I agreed on a Marvel movie. It's been a couple of years since that's been the case, I yeah, think. Yeah, that's been a um, hot sec. Those conversations are not for here, but... Thank you very much for, for being here, Sean. Uh, I'm very happy to have you on on the podcast. Uh, I think this was a really good discussion, and I hope people enjoy it. Yeah, no, thank you for having me. This was an absolute blast. You know I love just dumping all of my Marvel thoughts and talking <laughs> yes. with people about... I, I just love speculation about things and discussing, so th- this was a blast. And I, I, I do, even though... I, I've expressed this to you before, even though that is not what I look for when I'm looking for movies... I am glad that you're going to the theater and you're seeing movies at the end of the day. I'm glad that you enjoy that out of what the MCU is. I think that, I mean, frankly, just being that passionate about anything is really cool. And at the end of the day, you're that passionate about movies. So that's what this show is all about. It's not necessarily where the sensibilities of me, Brett, and Wyatt lie. But that's why I wanted to have you on. Because there are a lot of people that enjoy the MCU in the same way that you do. Mm-hmm. And so I'm glad that you were able to give that perspective. I'm glad that we agreed. Uh, but yeah, thank you, Sean, very much. Thank you, listener, very much. If you've gotten to this point, 
We really appreciate it. If you could go ahead and leave a five-star rating on whatever platform you're listening on, that helps out a lot. And give us a follow on all of our socials. We're at Last of the Moon Pod on everything. And we pretty much just use Instagram. So give us a follow on Instagram. That way you can be up to date with the goings on here at the Last of the Moon podcast. Get updated on when we're posting new episodes and just the things that are going on in our lives. Uh, We appreciate you. We love you very much. Sean, thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. And Sean, would you like to be the first guest to ever tell the audience that you love them? I would be honored. You know, I'm so full of love right now. This was honestly a much more positive discussion than I expected. I I was expecting a little more feedback, or not feedback, but pushback. A little pushback, yeah, Uh, because that's what I've given you in the past. Yes, a lot of it. So, (laughs) in celebration of our unity, Bryce, to the audience, I love you. You're wonderful. Thank you for getting this far. For the sake of everyone else here, you know, I'm guessing probably shouldn't be telling you thank you for getting this far, but hey, it was a blast. Hey, it was here. Thank you. We love you. Good night.